Good afternoon. You're listening to The Emily Rooney Show. She has been Queen of England for almost 60 years. Queen Elizabeth II, or Lilibet, as she was known as a child, was crowned in 1953. The moment of the Queen's crowning has come. Holding high St. Edward's crown, the Archbishop lowers the five-pound symbol of might and power, and as he places it upon the Queen's head and removes his hands, the assemblage in one voice cries, God save the Queen. Now historian and Vanity Fair contributor Sally Bedell-Smith, author of books on Princess Diana, the Clintons, and the Kennedys, has a new biography of the Queen detailing her life as a child during World War II through her trials and travails as titular head of state as, in the words of former Prime Minister Tony Blair said, a symbol of unity in a world of insecurity. That was a good phrase. Very good. <laughs> yes. Very apt. He's he's good. All right, Sally Bedell-Smith, welcome. Wow. Thank the, you. The Great to be here. detail in this book is staggering. I was confessing to you um, before we started that I realized I'm fascinated by the monarchy but really quite ignorant about it. I'm not steeped in the history of it, and you've got it all here in the book about Queen Elizabeth because she's been there for so long. Well, it was a total immersion experience for me, I have to say, over three years, um, six months over in the U.K., um, interviewing over 200 people, reading people's diaries, correspondence that they shared with me, traveling with the Queen. I went on one overseas tour to Bermuda and Trinidad. I traveled around the U.K., I was able to watch her sort of go through her paces over the course of a year. So I saw her um, public side and also was able through her um, close friends and um, and palace officials and family members to get a to sort of open the curtain and get a sense of what she's like as a as a human being as well as what goes into being uh, the head of state for not only England but the whole United Kingdom and 15 realms around the world and 14 overseas territories plus she's the head of the Commonwealth of Nations which is 54 countries so i mean in her 60 years as queen she's never granted an interview to the media. I mean, she's got a natural skepticism of the press, which has been tough on the royal family in, in English. But did you dare ask? Did oh, you even course. try? Oh, of course I tried. <laughs> <laughs> and I was lucky to actually have three conversations, yeah, albeit brief ones, that, yeah. um, at three different social occasions. And I have to say that was very helpful to me because in each case I saw flashes of the kind of the, the the wit and the liveliness, the you know, the sparkling eyes and the the gestures and uh, you know, the, the the sort of um joie de vivre that her you know, people who are close to her see routinely but the public really Not allowed to doesn't see, really. see. Tell the story, actually you were with your husband on the on, <laughs> on one of the ones because Horses are a flashpoint for her. Now, I knew she was interested. I didn't know to the extent that of yeah. her uh, interest and passion and compassion about horses. But tell the anecdote about your, your husband meeting her in that reception line. <laughs> well, we were, at, we were invited to the uh, Brit- British ambassador's garden party in 2007 when she was making a state visit. And um, there were I don't know, 700, 800 people there all lined up. And the ambassador kind of picked out every 10 people to be introduced to her. And I was introduced to her and said, you know, hello, your majesty. And um, she was introduced to my husband. And one thing you're really, I mean, it's not a strict and fast rule, but you're not supposed to ask the queen a question. 
And he not only asked her a question, but he asked her if she bet at the racetrack. Ugh. He asked her if she had put a wager on Street Sense, which was the winner at the Kentucky Derby. And what intrigued me at the time was how she very diplomatically deflected the question, but yet maintained an interest. She could tell there was something about, and he knew his way around racetracks. He used to watch a lot of races, and he knew how to read a race. And she kind of twigged into the fact that he knew what he was talking about. And so for the next, I don't know how, less than a minute, they completely replayed the, the the race, which was a very dramatic one. Street Sense was 19th and went up to the front, and she said, oh, you could see his yellow cap. And I was amazed at the end that he was so covered with mud because in the U.K., they all run on turf. And so it was it – was, and I thought as I saw this kind of little window into what she must be like in private, I thought, wow, this is kind of – you know, it, it changes my preconceptions. And I rem- remembered a comment that a friend of mine had made some years earlier. He's, Amer- he's a, a, a British artist, and he had painted the Queen's portrait. And he said, I was so surprised by her private side. He said, actually, he said – you know, she sort of talks like an Italian. She waves her hands around. And this is not kind of what you expect from that staid, um, very regal presence walking at a measured pace with her handbag on her arm. I have a little clip from a Charlie Rose interview with uh, Helen Mirren. Helen Mirren, of yeah. course, played the 2006 film The Queen. Right. Yeah, I just want to listen to this to see if you d- agree or disagree with what she says. I suspect she's blessed with a lack of imagination which makes her able to be absolutely consistent and relentlessly, endlessly consistent. And it's the first time anybody's ever said, blessed with a lack of imagination. <laughs> well, you know, imagination is a dangerous thing. It can lead you up in all kinds of dangerous routes. And I don't think the Queen has that kind of imagination. Um, and because of that, she's able to be utterly consistent. Do you agree with that? Well, I, I actually talked to Helen Mirren about her role, um, you know, and how she how she um, researched it, and she's she was extremely perceptive about it. I think, in a sense, she is correct. I mean, one of the one of the uh, iron rules of her uh, of the way she has to conduct herself as as a monarch is she takes advice, so she's not encouraged to uh, have initiative. On the other hand, she has really highly developed uh, powers of observation. And there's a certain level of imaginative uh, thinking that comes out of that. I think she, she, when she was a little girl living in Buckingham Palace with its 775 rooms, and she used to look out and watch um, all the ordinary people walking around. And, and she did used to kind of imagine what their lives were like. And i think that may have been where she began to develop these powers of observation and she will see things uh, in you know once she was she was meeting a group of Franciscan monks and she said to somebody I'm fascinated by their toes <laughs> <laughs> you know so it's I I you know I I understand what Helen Mirren was saying but she you know she I think she has to follow so many traditions and so well, many rituals it. that it somewhat hems her in. Right. So, I mean, it's one, I mean it's, it felt like sort of a pejorative to me to call her. Yeah. Lot. I mean, she's not allowed to have an imagination. Right. She has to be this idea of so consistent and to the point where she can't tip her hand 
politically or right. ideologically or right. she, no opinion about anything, about, you know, anything, well, not she, even but, food. But the thing is, she does have strong opinions. And, and, and talking to some of her close friends and her family, they did let slip some of them. And she's a very canny observer, particularly of the, all the politicians and world leaders that she's met. And she has some, she's had some very astute observations. And she can be, you know, quite spiky in her opinions. Talking to Sally Bedell-Smith, author of Elizabeth, the Queen, the Life of a Modern Monarch. In your book, you have an anecdote from a woman who says, what do you do anyway? Oh, and that was... It's great. She says, no one's ever asked me that. Yeah. Well, well, and it's not written anywhere. There's no list of official duties, but what does she do every well, day? Well, she is much more than a figurehead. She has two principal roles. One is uh, head of state. Uh, which is not inconsequential. She represents the government at home and abroad. Uh, she has a very structured day. She she meets with, um, obviously, her prime minister once a week, but she meets with other government min- ministers, Chancellor of the Exchequer and uh, members, of the, members of the cabinet and um, high-ranking members of the military and the clergy and the judiciary. They all have private audiences with her. And nobody take no, takes notes. Nobody else is there. And it's an opportunity for them to really tap into her accumulated wisdom and knowledge that she has acquired over the years. She spends a good portion of every morning and at night and on the weekends, in fact, on every day except Christmas and Easter, reading her government boxes. And these are red leather somewhat battered dispatch boxes that in, that um, contain all sorts of government documents, uh, classified intelligence briefings, minutes of cabinet meetings, reports from um, diplomats around the world. So she has a vast store of knowledge and it's and it, and it doesn't sort of pass through and you know and sit there idly. she, she relies on it. People, you know, uh, ministers come to her and they say, well, I'm going to meet somebody and what's a good way of establishing, um, you know, establishing common ground with this person? She'll say, well, you might talk about farming or, you know, some, you know, some little insight that she's acquired. So she has that and she's also, and this is a very important function of hers, she's also the the, the head of nation. And as, in, as that, she... Um, she maintains contact both through reading the correspondence that people send to her and also in traveling out throughout the UK and also around the world. And um, she recognizes people who are um, doing good service, people who are both civilians and in the military. She has over 60 years uh, given out 400,000, over 400,000 awards and honors to people uh, more than 600 times herself. Mm. And so that's, she said once, um, she did a little voiceover to a documentary once, and she said, um, I, you know, it's good to give people pat, pats on the back sometimes. It's a very dingy world otherwise. So it, so there are, you know, she maintains, she, she, she honors people for their service. She sets an example of service. And um, and she and she rewards people. So it's you know it, she has a whole portfolio of duties, and she's almost eighty six years no, old. That's, I mean, it's, it's an incredible testament to her. Yeah, that in sixty years, 
when you think about it, I mean, that's that's a lifetime yeah. that she has seen such profound, you know, change in her country and, and, and been able to, you know, remain relevant. She saw, you know, Britain decline from once being the most right. powerful empire in, in history to on the verge of economic collapse in the 1970s. Right. And then it became a multicultural, multi-ethnic, multi-religious society. I mean, she's had to go with all that. And, and <clears throat> you, you have a, a bit in there about her, you know— um, modern technology prowess. She's had to be able She's, to keep up with not just what's going on in the world, but some of the things about how to communicate in the and world. And learning how she moved with the times um, was fascinating to me because she had to adjust the monarchy. Um, they called it sort of imperceptible evolution. Uh, one of her private secretaries called it the Marmite theory of monarchy. And there's a that famous food over in the UK with a very distinctive label that's yellow and red and green and everybody looks at the Marmite label and it looks like the Marmite label they've always had but if you look at the one 50 years earlier you'll see that it was quite different but they've imperceptibly changed it over time and that's a lot of what the monarchy has done. I would say post-Diana they've probably accelerated the pace of, of um, adaptation to modern times but she's she's um, She's very traditional. She was brought up in an almost uh, Edwardian atmosphere, and I think it's a real testament to her open-mindedness that when people come to her and say, ma'am, I think we should be doing things this way, she's democratized her um, whole royal household, and she, you know, she has become, you know, she responds much more quickly to um, big events. She... um, uh, you know, she'll she she shows she's willing to show a little more feeling. She's relaxed protocol. Uh, so there are a lot of things that she's done, and she's also with a very much of a mind toward the future. She's also taken a really strong hand in the upbringing of Prince William, and all of her grandchildren have married what they call commoners. Mm-hmm. So the nature of the royal family is changing, and she has. I don't know. Given you know, them their approval, she's given it her approval. She is a she is a very tolerant person. But she, when William was going to school right down the hill from um, Windsor Castle, he would come up and have tea with her. And he has said on a number of occasions what an inspiration she has been to him and how much he has learned from observing her her behavior. And only in the last few years, she actually hired one of the most experienced and wise um, members of the diplomatic corps who had been the ambassador to the United States and to Russia and to Israel and is just what they call in England uh, a safe pair of hands. (laughs) And she um, enlisted him personally to be a mentor to uh, William in particular and, and also Harry, who is still in the line of succession as well. Of course, her father was uh, King George, right. the famous stutterer, who right. uh, the movie, you know, the King's Speech was made after. Uh, and he, he he became king very suddenly and right. had made this promise never to put her in the same position. But right. in, in 1940, we have a little bit of sound, because you don't hear her that often, yeah. occasionally. But um, on her 21st birthday, oh. she was with her parents in uh, on a tour of South Africa, and this yes. was a speech that was broadcast on the radio from Cape Town, all over the world. And the, yeah, and the princess then, at, at that young age of 21, devoted her life to the service of the Commonwealth. Here's a little of that. I declare before you all that my whole life, whether it be long or short, shall be devoted to your service 
and to the service of our great imperial family to which we all belong. But I shall not have strength to carry out this resolution alone unless you join in it with me, as I now invite you to do. I know that your support will be unfailingly given. God help me to make good my vow, and God bless all of you who are willing to share in it. It's very touching. As with so many speeches, it was written by, actually it was written by somebody who worked for the Times of London and by, by her father's private secretary. But when she first read it, she cried because it's a, it's a very moving, when she read it to herself before she had to broadcast it. There's something um, sort of sad so, about it, too. I mean, somebody else wrote it, and they're putting words in her mouth, and she but knows she, it's true. But she knows she knew it was true, and she has reiterated it over and over. She has said um, many times, this is a job for life. When she went through the coronation in June of 1953, um, not only was she crowned, but um, she was anointed, and she took an oath. And that oath, she was, she was in a sense... God's represent, you know, God had chosen her to represent her people. And she committed herself to that service to the, for the rest of her life. And, and that is something she has said repeatedly. Um, when I interviewed one of the archbishops of Canterbury, George Carey, who told me that he had come to her in 2003 and said um, that he was about to retire. And she said, you know, I can't do that. I'm going to carry on to the end. I mean, there's been so much written about them, and now the, the movie, the Helen Mirren movie, and, of course, now Iron Woman with uh, Meryl Streep is about Margaret Thatcher. Right. Iron Lady. Iron I Lady. Guess. Iron Lady, sorry. Queen is completely um, <laughs> absent from that movie. I was so surprised. I know. I haven't I, uh, seen it. But but I was just going to ask about the relationship with Margaret Thatcher because you write about that with yes. some detail. I mean, there was that incident where one of her uh, – well, public relations or communications assistants, Michael Shea, had been accused of leaking some very sensitive information to um, the Times of London, I think right. it was, uh, with Andrew. I used to work with Andrew Neal. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and um, they published this stuff, and he denied it. But they, they had to have a communication anyway, and th- that, that didn't seem to interrupt the relationship, Not even though all. they... And that must happen all the time. That well, somebody's always trying to get at a negative story yeah. and one or the other of them look bad. And, and, and in talking to the people who were around at the time, um, who watched the whole drama unfold after the Times um, published this quite explosive story alleging that she did have political opinions that were at odds... About South Africa, About South Africa, about the way Margaret Thatcher had handled the minor strikes... And uh, the Queen uh, immediately called Margaret Thatcher to say it was absolutely untrue. And my sense from talking to a number of people is that Michael Shea sort of, um, he, he kind of put his own views out there more than anything else, that he was, he was um, that he had these views and that he got a little bit um, taken in by some of the the journalists at the Times and that he was, I mean, he was speaking out of school and he might not necessarily have been representing her views. Um, but the relationship with Margaret Thatcher was completely fascinating to me. And, and I learned some things about it that kind of contradicted the the, conve- the conventional wisdom that they were these two women who couldn't mm. possibly have gotten along. And they were, al- they are almost exact contemporaries. They both um, had to prove themselves in a, in a masculine world 
Margaret Thatcher with a very different sort of confrontational style, the Queen with a much sort of um, softer, uh, one of her one of her former private secretaries said she was almost flirtatious. He said she made us feel like real men. Uh, <laughs> but uh, no, you probably couldn't say that about Margaret Thatcher. But um, fundamentally, so although they were, as the English might say, chalk and cheese in terms of their personalities, there was a great deal of mutual respect between the two women. Um, Margaret Thatcher was an ardent monarchist. She was brought up, you know, she was a greengrocer's daughter, brought up in Middle England. Her One of her private secretaries, Charles Pohl, said, nobody could curtsy more deeply than Margaret Thatcher. If I tried it, you'd have to have a crane lift me up. <laughs> and uh, and she always, you know, so, and, and the queen respected her brains and her um, accomplishments. And it may not have been the easiest thing to have her weekly audiences with her because Margaret Thatcher was somewhat humor-challenged and <laughs> she tended to lecture, so there wasn't the kind of badinage that the Queen had with, say, Churchill or even Callahan, who, uh, uh, who preceded Thatcher. But um, but there was enormous mutual respect, and I thought the uh, most telling uh, mark of that was when Margaret Thatcher was ousted by her fellow conservatives, and almost immediately the queen gave her the two highest honors that the queen can possibly bestow, the Order of the Garter and the Order of Merit. That's highly, that's really unusual for her to do that. I think Tony Blair is still waiting for his Order of the Garter, <laughs> and, and Gordon Brown hasn't gotten it either. But it was an action that showed mm. um, the respect. And I have an anecdote in the book that I thought it was really the most one of the most poignant things that um, I learned about the queen. And that was when Margaret Thatcher had her 80th birthday party um, in 2005, I guess it was. And she was by then physically somewhat frail. She, her mind had become impaired by a series of strokes, same age as the queen, who is as robust as mentally and physically as you can imagine. And uh, Margaret Thatcher, the queen was invited. She was there. Margaret Thatcher came up to her, extended her hand, and the queen held her hand very tightly so Margaret Thatcher could curtsy, not quite as low as she used to, but she continued to hold her hand, and she guided her through the party of 650 people. And Charles Pohl said that it was a, it was, a, it was such an astonishing sight because people aren't accustomed to seeing the queen that physically demonstrative, and it was a very sort of tender moment. Talking to Sally Bedell Smith, whose new book is *The Queen: The Life of a Modern Monarch*. When we return, I'm going to ask you about the Queen's relationship with her own children. And, of course, 1992, the year she called Annis Horribilis, which right. was the divorce of Diana and Prince Charles, among other things. Right. You're listening to The Emily Rooney Show. When we continue, we're going to hear more about that. And first, though, in 2009, during a visit to Buckingham Palace, President Obama gave Queen Elizabeth II an iPod as a gift. It was loaded with video footage of his inauguration, her 2007 visit to the United States, and with a selection of popular American show tunes, among them a rendition of You'll Never Walk Alone from the musical Carousel. This is the Emily Renew Show on 89.7 WGBH Boston Public Radio. We'll be right back.
Hello again. You're listening to The Emily Rooney Show. I'm talking to historian and biographer Sally Bedell-Smith, whose latest book is Elizabeth the Queen, The Life of a Modern Monarch. Well, you write very candidly that her own children, her four children, were a sense of a lot of pain for her, and she regrets that she didn't spend more time with them as children. Would that have changed anything? Well, it's hard to speculate about that, but I think the reality for her was that she became queen at 25. She knew she would be queen at some point. But she was married she, at age 21. She was that married was at age 21, yeah. which was not unusual for the at that time. But when she was when she became queen, she had a, a three-year-old son and an 18-month-old daughter, and she had to. She was thrown into this world, this very masculine world of um, aristocratic men and in both in her household and in government. And she really had to prove herself a worthy monarch. And as a consequence, she didn't spend as much time with her children. She could rely on some, some, some very nurturing nannies and her own mother, the queen mother, was um, was a very strong force in the life of her of, of her eldest son, Prince Charles, in particular. But she she was somewhat detached. She um, had to spend a lot of time on her official duties. And as the widow of one of her longest serving um, top advisors said that, in fact, she probably did find it easier to retreat to her red boxes than to deal with temper tantrums. She is, by nature, a reserved person. She's not terribly physically demonstrative. And so um, I think it wasn't much—it didn't, it didn't really have much of an impact on, say, Princess Anne, who is a very sturdy uh, character— um, and could roll with the punches, and and um, Charles, but Charles was much more sensitive. And one of the things that the Queen had to do because of the press of her duties was to give the responsibility for making domestic decisions to her husband, Prince Philip, who was a bit of a believer in tough love, and he felt he could see that Charles was a very sensitive soul, and he felt that he was going to have to deal with difficulties as he went forward. And so he put him in situations that he thought would toughen him up, but instead they kind of, you know, increased the distance that mm. he felt. And of course, later he had an official biography written, Charles did, when and, and he spoke, um, you know, he spoke of his unhappiness when he was a child. Mm. And, I both, and, it, and it hurt both the Queen and Prince Philip. When Charles first introduced his mother to Princess Diana, then then Diana Diana Spencer. Did she approve? Did she like Diana? Was she did? And Diana had many appealing qualities. She was very well. She was very young, first of all, and the Queen knew the Spencer family. And the Spencer family is is one of the oldest in um, in Britain. It was an old Whig family. In fact, Diana herself felt somewhat superior to the royal family because the Spencers had been among the Whig families that had brought the Queen's, uh, the, the first Hanovers, George uh, George I, to to be the monarch of, 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 um, of, of England. And so um, the Queen knew them. Uh, Diana, for part of her childhood, had grown up very near the Queen's 
estate in Norfolk, Sandringham. Um, she knew the, the children, but um, and her father had served uh, as an equerry as one of the queen's um, advisors. So they, they knew the family, but they didn't really know Diana very well, and they didn't understand that Diana had a lot mm. of emotional problems. And she they, tried to she, she, pull she the was, two together, even when they knew the whole relationship oh, she did. was unraveling. And, and, and I have to say, I talked to friends of Diana who said that she, the queen was very welcoming at the be- beginning. She said, my door is open. The, um, Diana used to go over to Buckingham Palace and swim, and she said, you can come by and see me anytime. She said, you know, um, call me mama. And, and But at the same time, the queen was a little was intimidating to diana she was diana was very young and the fact was that diana and charles were totally mismatched they were so incompatible they thought at the beginning i mean they each convinced themselves that they were that they were in love and they were in love kind of with the ideal of each other and and the rift just widened and widened and widened until and but the queen didn't really know the extent of the problems that they were having. There is something called ostriching, which is applied to the royal family, which is when there are problems <laughs> going, sand, yeah. going on, they just avert their eyes. Because so she may have heard little pings about problems, but it wasn't until the Anacerebalus in 1992 when Diana, um, when Ed, um, Andrew Morton came out with his, um, shocking, his book. shocking book about the terrible problems between Diana and yeah. Charles and Diana had secretly cooperated with it. and well, Here's a little yeah. bit of the Queen addressing that uh, honest horribles. 1992 is not a year on which I shall look back with undiluted pleasure. In the words of one of my more sympathetic correspondents, it has turned out to be an annus horribilis. I sometimes wonder how future generations will judge the events of this tumultuous year. Yes, I that was that was an intensely personal, mm. uncharacteristically personal um, speech of hers. And in addition to the marriage of Charles and Diana breaking up, it was also her Princess Anne's marriage broke yeah. up and Prince Andrew's marriage Prince broke Andrew up. Prince Andrew to Fergie. And yeah. Windsor Castle, which the Queen has always considered her real home, suffered from a catastrophic fire. And when she made that speech, it was only... And, and this was supposed to be a good year for her. It was the 40th year of her reign. She, she decided because of all the problems that were happening in her family that she wasn't going to celebrate it as she is this year, her Diamond Jubilee, for example. And you could hear she was out at Windsor and walking around and, and surveying the damage, and she had a bad cold. She had Her, vo- her voice had, had suffered from the smoke inhalation, and, and she was... Um, you know, she was she was very upset, and I think the the intensity of that um, upset came through. But she also said in that speech that um, that they that they knew that there were things that the monarchy should do, somewhat the way she did when she gave a speech mm. after Diana died. Um, that they needed to be more responsive. There was a there was a big. There was a um, big push right around the time she made that speech to um, to have the monarchy pay taxes, uh, to have the queen which pay taxes on her income, since, yeah. which she did. And she had actually been planning to do it, but the 
but the timetable was accelerated. Sally Bedell-Smith, what do you think is going to happen now? I mean, there's some speculation that the queen is staying in her role as long as she possibly humanly can to maybe be able to limit the reign of her son, Charles, and be able to eventually, within a short period of time, transfer the title to her grandson. Abdication is anathema to her. And, you know, as you, that, that vow that she made when she was 21 is something that she... What if she gets Alzheimer's or something? Well, she, um, in fact, nobody had, uh, nobody had talked about that before, but one of her, one of her first cousins who was, um, is, also happens to be one of her closest friends um, and one of the many people kind of in that inner circle that I interviewed told me that she had a discussion with the queen one day about, um, about this whole issue. And the queen said... Well, if I were to get Alzheimer's or to have a stroke, things might change, but I won't give up the throne. What would happen? She said, even, and as her cousin said, even then she wouldn't retire. Charles would become a prince regent. He would take over a lot of her responsibilities, but she would not give it up. I think that the trauma of what her uncle, Edward VIII, did in giving up the throne um, is Marrying Wallace Simpson. Marrying Wallace Simpson. Mrs. Simpson yeah. from Baltimore, twice divorced. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and, I, and, so I, and, and as far as skipping generations, that's, prop, that's not, not in the happen. cards either. That would depend on Prince Charles. Look, the queen still rides horses on the weekends and um, when she's on, on holiday up in Norfolk, where she is now. And she, she's robust and she's mentally very acute. There's every reason to think she could continue as she, as she is doing, albeit with a slightly reduced schedule, for another 10 years. And Charles would be in his 70s when wow. he became king. Now, if he decided to abdicate, um, there are a lot of complications that would be attendant to that. But there is a great groundswell of, um, you know, of affection for... William and Kate. Yeah, David Cameron called them the team of the future. Yeah, and right. the Queen, um, quite understandably, has taken a great interest in them, and she sees them as the team of the future and making connections with people of their generation. Sally Bedell-Smith, thank you so much for joining us. And the new book is Elizabeth the Queen, The Life of a Modern Monarch. You can find more information about Sally Bedell-Smith and her new book at our website, wgbh.org, Emily Rooney. Once there, you can also find links to the Royal Family's YouTube channel and video of Queen Elizabeth's 1953 coronation. From 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. listening to The Emily Rooney Show. Well, not long after it premiered in 2010, the buzz began to mount for PBS's masterpiece miniseries, Downton Abbey. Sure, there was the critical acclaim and the devout, period-piece-loving masterpiece set, but the kind of mainstream appeal the Britain-produced show began to enjoy here in the States was an unexpected surprise for almost everyone. In a sea of TV talent competitions and reality shows about housewives, Downton Abbey is, after all, a scripted drama about an aristocratic family and their servants in pre-World War I England. Here's a promo from season one. On Masterpiece Classic. Six o'clock! 
Step into Downton Abbey. Downton is a great house, and the Crawleys are a great family. Do you know who the new heir is Robert's third cousin? I thought Lady Mary was the heir. Girls can't inherit. Don't you care about Downton? I've given my life to Downton. I won't let them change me. Why are you so against him? He isn't one of us. Welcome to Downton. Downton Abbey on Masterpiece Classic. Well, needless to say, it wasn't the most obvious choice to become a runaway hit among American television viewers. But with its second season premiere earlier this month, attracting more than four million viewers and with four Emmys and one Golden Globe under its belt, it's safe to say it has become a runaway hit. Fresh off a win at this week's Golden Globes, Masterpiece executive producer Rebecca Eaton is here. Well, how much fun is that? You won a Golden Globe. <laughs> how much fun is that? Well, it beats working Where is here it now? at Western Avenue. <laughs> oh, I can't possibly tell you. Uh, uh, you should have brought it in. It was um, it was definitely the country mouse and the city mouse. Yeah. PBS masterpiece going to Hollywood. Um, and the way we were welcomed, and I have to say we being me and some of the cast from Downton and Julian Fellows who wrote and created, uh, created it, I think we're so... We're so well thought of in Hollywood, uh, but this time they not only approve of us, but they'd actually watched the show. They were a little bit in awe. Yeah. And so I wondered about that, whether they have a a general awareness. I mean, let's face it. It's a very self-absorbed crowd. But You think? I mean, you could tell me better than I know, but... Are they totally aware? Are they? Can they have a you know intelligent conversation about it? Well, intelligent. I don't know. <laughs> not no. I mean, because they gush just like everybody gushes, and the the words they use are obsessed and addicted. That seems to be what happens when people watch it because it is a page turner, to put it in book terms. You just get to the end of one episode and, you know, you can't wait a week. You have to get quickly on to the next one, which is why we've had such a huge success streaming it. But on the night at the Golden Globes, going back to the party on Sunday night, um, you know, it's like a big dinner party um, with lots of alcohol and not too much food. (laughs) Nobody eats because nobody eats in Hollywood anyway. They all weigh 90 pounds. Yeah. So uh, it's all kind of you know, everybody arrives and sits down at their proper places, and then the wine begins to flow, and then people jump up and table hop. Sure. And sitting at the Downton Abbey table with Elizabeth McGovern, who plays Cora, Lady Grantham, and Lord the Earl, Lord Grantham, uh, Hugh Bonneville, and Julian Fellows, um, people came over to the table. Like who? Like who? (laughs) Okay. Hugs and kisses from Colin Firth. Nice. Because he is effectually First, he was the start of the King's Speech. We shouldn't think the King's Speech, but he's been on Masterpiece several times, and he's a friend of Elizabeth. So, hugs and kisses. Uh, Laura Linney, who is our presenter, Helen Mirren, who has been so good to us, and of course, she is prime suspect as well as the Queen. And Meryl Streep. Uh, I have to say, Meryl didn't come to her table. I actually went to her table. Uh-huh. And uh, she has, she's been a friend over the years, and she said, I haven't seen it because I work all the time. <laughs> yes. Uh, she said, but my daughter, Mamie Gummer, and her husband are obsessed. And so I said, well, do you want to be in it? <laughs> Did you really? What would she say? Uh, She'd be her, perfect for that. Well, she, her eyes got huge, and we talked about it, and I said, oh, there is an, um, another American character in Series 3 coming in. And I said, it's two weeks' work, and all your scenes would be with Maggie Smith. And she said, really? When is it shooting? And it's unfortunately shooting this March, and she can't do it. Oh, it's coming up right right yeah. now. So for season three? 
Season How many three. episodes are there? Seven. This Ugh, season two, there's short. seven episodes, ten hours. Yeah, that's a lot of time, I should say. It's yeah. a so, lot of time. So the first one was two hours, and then some of them are an hour, some are an yes. hour and a half. The, be careful. They're all different lengths. Yeah. But this is like back to the old days of Masterpiece Theater, as we were when we did Jewel in the Crown and I, Claudius, which would go on for weeks. But people uh, stopped making them that long in England, and uh, viewers were sort of afraid to commit because they were thinking, I, I don't know where I'll be for 10 weeks in a row or even seven Sunday nights at nine, which is where time shifting, streaming, DVDs have completely changed our game. All right. So for the uninitiated, how does this work? It's a British produced drama. It's now running here on PBS. Was it already in production when... No. All right. So no. describe your involvement, I guess, is what I'm getting at. <laughs> the way Masterpiece works is that all these productions are co-productions with British partners. Some of them, a very few of them, are acquisitions, which means they're already made. We screen them. We decide to buy them or license them. The co-productions, we will get pitched an idea or possibly sent a script, maybe just one script and a treatment for the whole series and decide at that point whether to come in as or not to come in as co-producers. And that means giving them money to make it, and then we get to show it here. In exchange for that, uh, besides all these awards, <laughs> we get input into the scripts mm-hmm. and casting and the cuts. Um, so Downton came as an idea. They pitched it to us as an idea. And I have to say, I would like to say I knew from the first page that it was going to be a mega hit. But I didn't. You didn't. <laughs> I when didn't. did you know? Um, I knew after a few episodes, many phone calls with the producers, and I have to say, I think for me, the thing that tipped me was the casting of Maggie Smith and the casting of Elizabeth McGovern, because they came in, and then I thought, wow. And I heard from Elizabeth that she thought it was going to be really, really good, because some of these things can be good on the page, but not on the stage. Yeah, not to compare it to this, but I was thinking one of the alluring things about that old uh, drama Twin Peaks was the music. There was something about it that just drew you in, and that was kind of a fun, you know, mystery. But this music, it's it's like one of the... Oh, I think it's just... We've got to play a little few bars of that. Yeah, here we go. Oh, my gosh, it just... Yeah. You feel the period, you feel... It's very interesting because it has that lower, almost, it's not ominous, but there's a tension in the lower thing and there's a delicate piano. You you feel war in a way. Yeah, well. Which is what it is. That's what happens. Series 2 starts in 1916 and the war has been on for two years and Matthew Crawley is in the trenches, as is Thomas, Mm -hmm. the hateful Thomas, the footman. But keep your eye on Thomas. All right, we've got a little cop. We've got a little. Um, this is the promo again from season two. So this is, as you say, it starts in the trenches in World War Two. I think of my life at Downton. Seems like another world. I don't believe it. Oh, it feels as if all the men I ever danced with are dead. War deals out strange tasks. There's a war on. Things cannot be the same when there's a war on. Mary, if I don't come back. No, if I don't. Talking to Rebecca Eaton, executive producer of Masterpieces, Downton Abbey. What is it about this that has... Why are people so drawn into it? I mean, it is PBS, after all. People, you know, it's people, oh, you know, they always think it's an eat your peas network. 
<laughs> yeah. Well, first of all, it was on ITV, commercial broadcasting in the UK. It was a big risk for them to do it because usually the BBC, public broadcaster, does these things. I think Julian Fellows, who created it, uh, came up with the perfect idea of a very classy adult soap opera combined with social history, set in a fantastic period, starting in Edwardian England that starts in 1912, um, with perfect eye candy, whether it's High Clear Castle, which is Downton Abbey, or the actors, the beautiful daughters, um, Lady Cora, even Maggie Smith. Uh, and there was a production values attached to it, which are as good as anything, I think, that comes out of of England for masterpiece, usual programs, or, th or films, feature films, because a lot of these people will go back and forth between feature films and television. So I think it's just a rattling good yarn, and there is a love story at the heart of it. There mm -hmm. are actually three love stories. Yeah, there's stories. always that. You've got to have that. And you have to have that. I mean, I think those are the things that really, really um, pop are the great stories. You can have a war. You can have tension about money and betrayal and real estate and murder. But if there's a love story, then you pull in a whole other kind of attachment. One of the staggeringly beautiful things about it is the production quality and mm -hmm. elements. I mean, it looks like every week looks like a major motion picture, Pride mm -hmm, and Prejudice. Mm -hmm. First of all, what is it shot on? It's shot on HD. It, it, Just it's, HD? Yeah. Digital. Yeah, it's very high-end, but mm -hmm. it, it's not film, and people think... Uh, it looks like the old film. Yeah. I know. Well, they, the British cameraman, the cinematographer actually won an Emmy for his work on this. Um, and what you're thinking of are a lot of the wide shots of the house and when they're outside, but most of it takes place inside. These are interiors, and it's in the real... High Clear Castle. That is exactly how High Clear Castle looks. They didn't redecorate. Oh, decorate. so that so that's really yeah. it. That is yeah. the building. That is the building. The downstairs, however, the kitchens and some of the bedrooms are shot in Ealing Studios, the famous Ealing ah. Studios in England, uh, in London. And so, often all those people are miles away from the upstairs people. The casts are literally in two different places. And then sometimes someone from upstairs will go downstairs to have a conversation with Mrs. Patmore, the cook, or Daisy, and sometimes they come upstairs for the scenes between, say, Anna and Ma Lady Mary about their various love lives. Um, so uh, half of it is done on location and half it's in a studio. I mean, it's really done like a commercial venture. I hate to be so crass, but how, how do you pay for this? How do you make money off of this? How do you do it? Who? You. How do PBS. I make money off it? Well, well, well no, PBS you. doesn't make money. PBS doesn't. No, but I mean, is it all through funding? How, how do you do it? You have to make something off of it or you wouldn't be able to do the, it. I have to say that first of all, Masterpiece the Series gets all of its money from PBS and we have a new underwriter, a sponsor, Viking River Cruises, who came on this year. And boy, were they smart. Well, they because stepped in it. Yeah. They saw, yeah <laughs> they saw the first Downton Abbey and they said, can we come on and join you for a year? So they are our underwriter for a year. So we get some money from there. And we established the Masterpiece Trust, which I have to describe quickly, which is this our new idea to keep Masterpiece safe in the future for all the vicissitudes in funding from PBS. The Masterpiece Trust is an opportunity for individuals to donate money directly to Masterpiece. Mm. The money comes straight to us and goes into programs. In exchange for that, 
you get your name on the show. So if you love Downton Abbey, you can have your name on it probably not till next year, or we have great expectations coming up and more Charles Dickens. And we'll have all that information on our website so people can figure out how to do that so they don't have to figure but the it other, out right now. And the other thing is, you say, how does there is an opportunity to make money because of the DVDs, and um, PBS Distribution sells the DVDs, and they have been number one on Amazon, number one on iTunes Series 1 and 2. You can buy them now, even before Series 2 is finished airing. Oh, you must uh, approve of Pope, Sopa and Pippa in that case. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we won't get into that right now. Do you think also one of the appeals of this drama is kind of this universal theme, uh, which is part of the tension, you know, the changing world and the tensions between the, you know, the haves and the have-nots and this realization, well, there's that great scene with the woman learning how to drive and you forget that women didn't always drive and just this knowing that this mm-hmm. change, we all know, of course, that the change did come, but sort of reliving the changes of that period of time. Well, yeah, I, I think that time... World War I, of course, was a pivotal moment in British history. It changed everything because so many of the young men died. They lost a generation. The other thing that happened was that the, uh, the underclass, the servants, served with the officers, the aristocrats in World War I, and they served side by side with them. They saved each other's lives. So when they came back, things were completely different forever. And Series 1 of Downton is on the verge of that of social change. And I think it's a piece of social history that that a lot of younger people particularly don't know about. I'm not sure they would even know exactly when World War I was or what difference it made. Um, And it made, of course, a huge difference in England and eventually a huge difference here. Um, Series 2 is set during the war uh, and things get darker, and there are more serious dilemmas than who stole the snuff box, which, <laughs> well, and then there was the problem with Mr. Pamuk dying in oh, Mary, yeah. Lady Mary's bed, but we have to be. Yeah, that was a, one of the little scandals. Well, <laughs> one of the concerns about this season was the transformation of Downton into a hospital, that mm-hmm. it would change the whole dynamic, and would they be able to. That hasn't happened yet, I don't think. But Spoiler, but, Emily, well, oh, be sorry, careful. Sorry, sorry, sorry. But, I mean, you must have thought that through. Yes, it's what really happened. That's these great houses were turned into infirmaries for soldiers, and it meant new and strange people were coming into the house. And then, what would happen? Would there be relationships between any of those people and people in the houses? And yes, there mm-hmm. were. And yes, there will be in our Downton. Downton three, of course, is now set after the war. The war is over, and we're in the twenties. And Julian Fellows is writing it fast and furiously right now. It starts filming in February, and uh, it will be on the air, fingers crossed, a year from now. Downton, there is a Series 3 just as long coming. That's exciting. So <clears throat> how did you respond to this criticism from this um, Columbia University historian, Simon Shama, I think yeah, his name yeah. is, and who was calling this, um, oh, what did he say? It was, you know... A, well, anyway, you said it's historically inaccurate, essentially, among other things. Oh. It, I mean, my response would be, yeah, it's a drama. I mean, well, it's... yeah, it is a drama. <laughs> this is fiction. And I don't actually know specifically what he said. Um, but they they were Julian Here, Fellows. A silvered terrain of snobbery. Well, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. That's Isn't that not the idea? His, that's different. That's what makes it fun. <laughs> historically inaccurate. Uh, you know, snobbery. I don't know. Yes, they're rich 
aristocrats, and yes, I'm sure there were a lot of aristocrats who were absolutely hateful back in the day, but I think the way Julian has written it, he's written a story of a community. These people are completely dependent on each other, the downstairs to the upstairs and the upstairs to the downstairs. And he's a very good-hearted man, Julian, and I think what he was after was telling stories of people trying to do the right thing. This sounds a little highfalutin, but if you look at all the jeopardies involved in the in the personal lives of these people, they're all searching for ways to kind of do the right thing. Even Thomas, keep your eye on Thomas and O'Brien, who have been particularly hateful. And, you know, Lord Grantham trying to keep this estate together. What will happen with Mary and Matthew? Matthew is now engaged. Mary's got a new beau. Um, and it's very, you know, corny to say, but aside from the the beautifulness of it, there's something kind of uplifting about how these people are trying to be moral. Back to the commercial side of this for a second. You, you mentioned that it started on a commercial station uh, in Britain. Has anybody tried to wrestle this away from you? I mean, is that possible? Because it could be a, com- a huge commercial success. We have it pretty well tied up forever. I mean, we uh, who knew? Um, but we had a little bit of feeling this could go on and on, and we wanted to make sure that uh, we would always be the co-producer, and we will. How long did uh, Upstairs, Downstairs go? That had some of the same appeal. Yes, it had five seasons, I think, 70-something oh, yeah. episodes. Yeah, it, That was my parents who were really rich into course, that. Of yeah. course. <laughs> of course. Uh, and, of course, we have our own new Upstairs, Downstairs. Last year, uh, we aired a BBC co-production with three parts with Jean Marsh, who played Rose in the first one and Rose in the second one. And we've just finished shooting six new Upstairs, Downstairs, which will be on not this year, but next year in 2013. Now, do you qualify for the Oscars this year, too? No, no. That's just movies. That's just movies. So what? Who needs an Oscar? Oscar (laughs) schmoscar. I don't know. They have all these special categories now. I thought maybe you could sneak in there with, you know. Uh, No. We have... um, I think we're coming to the end of award season. I mean, none of us can do our jobs anymore because of all these. Oh, wow. Oh, whoa. It's Talk such about a problem. What a problem. <laughs> An embarrassing problem. Yeah. Well, I mean. That night, I have to say, the night of the, of the Golden Globes, um, there was a huge shout and applause when it was announced that we won. I found out later that there were, let me see if I've got this number right, 6,000 tweets a second, right at the time of the announcement, which was more than the Super Bowl or the Royal Wedding, which says to me that there is a whole other group of people out there who are obsessed. And these are younger people because that's who use social media. Exactly. Um, the streaming, I mean, what? My daughter is one of them. She's a very young person. She's a streamer. Yes. And I mean, she's been streaming the series. And, you know, she probably was tweeting that night herself. Yeah. Um, so I think we've we've moved master Downton Abbey for sure, masterpiece hopefully, and even PBS into a uh, a whole new generation. It's about, time. It's about time. but what do you think it is about this uh, series that appeals to young people? Because you would think it would be a put off. Uh, well, I don't know. I think love stories are, uh, and beautiful people mm. are appealing, and there's enough tension. And and the other thing is, I mean for. We weren't for a long time available to people to see right away. And now you can come to the website and stream it that day, the next day. Um, Downton One is still available on Netflix for streaming. So I think we became more accessible to lots of young people. 
I am very interested. There are a lot of young men who are kind of dragged to Downton by their girlfriends. Ah, and or then even, they end up loving it. And then they end up loving it because I think the guys are cool too. Oh, the, the guys are fantastic, yeah. All right, Rebecca Eaton, congratulations. This is very exciting. By the way, in last week's New York Times Magazine puzzle, one of the questions was flagship PBS station. So I, I, know. I inserted GBH. I know. I, that, that was awful? wrong. And it we, said it was ETA. I said, w- that is wrong. N-E-T. W-N-E-T. W-N-E-T. It was sorry. wrong. I know. We should the, complain. I mean, they are not the flagship station. If anybody cares to have that corrected, it's WGBH. <laughs> we produce all the programs right here. What do they got? What do they produce? Nothing. 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 All right. <laughs> we've, we've set that record straight. We got to call, what's his name? Uh, the, the puzzle guy. Will Short. Will Short. <laughs> we'll call Will. Straighten that out. All right. Rebecca Eaton, thank you so much. Thank you, Emily. All right. And as been saying earlier, you can watch Downton Abbey on WGBH Channel 2 on Sunday nights at 9. And you can also find more information about Masterpiece, links to the full episodes, everything we've been talking about, even a quiz to determine which Downton character you most closely resemble. Don't tell me who. All right. At our website at WGBH.org slash Emily Rooney. Rebecca, thanks again. Up next, with a trip to the Super Bowl on the line, we preview this weekend's high stakes. Pat's Ravens matchup. You're listening to The Emily Rooney Show from 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio.